Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us together this evening as your children. And Lord, we thank you that although we are few in number, we have the assurance that you are present in our midst. Lord, as we open up your word now, we pray that you would speak to us through it. Father, we know that the letter itself kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we pray that you would be pleased to bless us with the work of your Spirit in our hearts as we hear your word, we might understand the truth you're saying to us through it, and that we might believe the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're looking at Genesis chapter 22, so you might follow along in your own Bibles with that. And to set the context for the chapter, let me remind you of what we saw last week in Genesis 15. We saw there that God made a covenant with Abraham. And included in the covenant were these great covenant promises. And one of the promises was that God would make Abraham's offspring as innumerable as the stars of the heavens. And another promise was that Abraham's offspring would possess the land that Abraham was passing through. But as we came to the end of chapter 15 last week, Abraham still was experiencing the seemingly insurmountable problem. His wife, Sarah, was barren. She remained childless. So there were these great promises regarding Abraham's offspring, but he did not yet have a son. As we go forward through the intervening chapters, we see that in chapter 17, God comes and reaffirms all those covenant promises to Abraham and also says that he is going to bless his wife, Sarah, and that she will bear him a son and they are to name him Isaac. And as God promised, a year later, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. And God told Abraham that in your son Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. And in saying that, God linked this boy Isaac with these covenant promises. These covenant promises that God had made regarding Abraham's offspring would now be fulfilled through this son Isaac. That's the context that leads us then this evening to Genesis chapter 22. And the chapter begins with an unthinkable command. Looking at verse 1, it says, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. God comes to Abraham and tells him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, this would be a devastating and unthinkable command for any parent, for any mother or father to hear from God the command that they were to take a son or a daughter and offer the child as a sacrifice to God. And certainly, Abraham must have experienced all the the pain and grief that such a command would give any other parent. But there's probably an additional source of grief for Abraham, and that was because this was the son of promise. This was the son through whom God had told him all the covenant promises would be fulfilled. God had given these great promises to Abraham, and now God says, the very son who I told you would be the means for their fulfillment, sacrifice him. It's just as if God was telling him not only to sacrifice his son, but even put to death the promises that God had given him. It must have been an unthinkable command for Abraham. But what was Abraham's response to that unthinkable command. We see in verse 3, he responds with faithful obedience. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. 
he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So we see Abraham respond in obedience. And this is a remarkable obedience. It had been enough if God said, immediately offer your son as a sacrifice. But in fact, Abraham had to prepare for the sacrifice. And he had to then go on a three days journey to the place of sacrifice, all the time carrying in his mind and his heart this unthinkable command God had given him. But not only was he obedient, I said that he was faithfully obedient. And you might look at this and wonder, well, where is the faith of Abraham in this passage? Notice what he says, though, to his servants there in verse 5. They come to the place where they can see the place of sacrifice from afar. And he tells the servants to stay there with the donkey. And he says, I and the boy will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So Abraham was telling the servants that they would go and he knew that what he was called to do is called to sacrifice his son, but he says, we will come back to you. What was going on in Abraham's mind when he said that? Actually, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what was going on in his mind. Abraham had in his mind this, these great covenant promises of God regarding his offspring. He also had in his mind this unthinkable command to put his son Isaac to death. And how was Abraham able to, to obey the command? By believing in the promises and trusting that if God has given this command, he will raise my son from the dead. He will give Isaac back to me from the dead. Now, at first we might think that that faith of Abraham sort of removes the pathos of this passage, this passage that has this unthinkable command to put your son to death. If we then say, well, Abraham believed he would receive him back, that kind of removes all the tension of the passage. But it does not. Because at this point, Abraham had never seen anyone raised from the dead. He'd never heard of anyone be raised from the dead. In fact, God had not even explicitly told him he would raise Isaac from the dead. But for Abraham, belief in the promises meant trusting that this thing he'd never heard about, he'd never seen, and God had never told him would indeed come to pass because God would be faithful to his covenant promises. So it was with that faith that was at the very end of human reason, the end of human sight, is with that faith Abraham was able to be obedient. Well, we see then in verse 6 that they leave the servant and donkey, and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So as they're going along, Isaac asks what must have been a very painful question for Abraham. Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? As we read through the account of Abraham, we see that several times when he would stop in a place, he would erect an altar and call upon the name of the Lord by offering sacrifices. So we can understand, we can presume that Isaac has seen his father Abraham offer sacrifices before. He knows what's required. You need wood, you need fire, you need a knife, and he knows you need a lamb. And so he asks the obvious logical question, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham replies that God himself will provide the lamb. Now, there's no indication in the text that Abraham 
could foresee what God was going to do. We know, because we've already read the, the entire passage, but there's no sense that Abraham knew. But the sense in which Abraham is saying, the Lord will provide. In fact, he has provided the lamb. He's provided you. You're the son of promise. You're the son of the miraculous birth given to a woman who is past the age of childbearing, and you are the lamb that God has provided for the burnt offering. Well, they go on then, and they reach the place that God had told them about. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So we reach here the point of greatest tension in the passage. And the action in a sense slows the camera. You know, kind of comes, the frames slow down here as we focus on this very moment. And as we have Abraham staring into the abyss, on the precipice, where human sight has failed him, human reason has failed him, but he continues to trust the promises, and he's ready to follow through on the unthinkable command. At that very moment, we see one of the most important three-letter words in the Bible. It appears more than once, but it's a very important word. Verse 11, but. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So from heaven, the angel of the Lord calls out to him, stop, do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. And the angel says to him, you've passed the test. I've tested your faith and you have passed the test. And who is this one calling out? It's referred to as the angel of the Lord, but see what happens there in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me, your son, your only son. The angel of the Lord identifies himself as being the one to whom Abraham was going to offer the boy. So who was the angel of the Lord here? Well, it's God. And as we often see in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is most likely Jesus. It's most likely the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, calling out to Abraham here. We're told then in verse 13 that Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So after the voice calls out to him, Abraham looks up, he looks over, and there in a thicket is this ram caught by its horns. And what are we told he does? He took the ram and sacrificed it instead of his son. And he recognized that the ram was God's provision. God had provided this sacrifice to him. Well, this is a great story. In fact, it's one of the great stories of world literature. And it's not only given been a source of great interest for theologians and Bible scholars, but even philosophers, most namely uh, Soren Kierkegaard, thought much about what did this passage tell us about faith, about the nature of God. So there's been a lot of thought given to this passage. But if we ask what does it mean to us tonight, we could give several answers. One thing it means to us is that at times the testing of God will consist of what seem to be unthinkable commands. At times God will call upon us to do what seems completely beyond human sight, completely beyond human reason. But it's God testing our faith, and he will bring us through it. 
And as part of what we also see there is that even in the most dire circumstances, at the time when human faith has, human sight has failed, when it seems the darkest, when it seems that we're beyond all hope, God is able to provide for us in that circumstance. So we see the testings can be severe. We see that God can provide. But there's something else we see here. And what we see, or what I'm going to talk about, is something that Abraham himself may not have understood very well, but that I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach us by including chapter 22 in the Word of God for us. We see here that Abraham is called to offer his son, but instead of offering his son, he offers this ram that the Lord has provided. And we see here a beginning glimpse of a picture, a picture that over the course of the Old Testament will become more and more full until finally, as we approach the New Testament, the picture becomes very clear and we can see what God is showing to us. So I want to take a moment with you to think through how this picture develops over the Old Testament and see what it means for us this evening. If we think forward a few hundred years to when Abraham's descendants were in Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, and Moses sends, uh, God sends Moses to deliver the people from captivity. And Moses comes to the king of Egypt and says, the Lord says, let my people go. And the king says, no. And then God begins to send plagues against the Egyptians so that they would suffer. But after each plague, Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and he would not let the people go. Until finally they came to the last plague, where God said, on a given night, I am going to pass through the land. And as I pass through, I will strike down the firstborn male of human and animal among all the Egyptians. But he told his people, the Israelites, through Moses, to do something. He told them to take a lamb, kill the lamb, and take some of its blood and apply it to the doorpost of the house. And God said that when I pass through the land, I will see the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and I will pass over that house. So on that night, as God passed through, he kills the firstborn males of the Egyptians. But by seeing the blood of the lamb on the house of the Israelites, he passes over those houses. Well, then a chapter later in Exodus 13, there's an explanation of something that God wants his people to do going forward. He says, going forward, they are to give all firstborn males of their livestock to him. That means a, a firstborn male lamb or a kid goat or a bull calf is to be given to the Lord. Once it's born, you're to offer it as a sacrifice to God. But then he gave these two quite interesting instructions. And many people this morning noted that they'd never thought of this before. It's something you pass over. He gave a very interesting instruction on what they were to do with male donkeys. If, you're, if you have a firstborn male donkey, God says, redeem it with a lamb. That means offer a lamb in place of the donkey. Redeem, purchase the donkey with a lamb. And if you do not redeem it, break its neck. So God told them that they had two choices with a baby donkey. Either it was to be killed or a lamb was to be killed in its place. A lamb was to be substituted for the donkey. And then God says, you're also to redeem all of your firstborn sons. So that, in a sense, the very thing he just told them to do with the donkey, the command is not directly the same. He never tells them to kill the firstborn males, but the picture of redemption, of purchase, of buying the life with a substitute 
is parallel there between those two commands. Well, what was going on here? I suspect that the people at the time probably struggled to understand what was going on. They may have understood that God wants us to substitute an animal for another life. They've read the account of Abraham. They've seen the Passover. They hear this command about the firstborn males. They probably understood there's something going on here. But the picture remained rather cloudy. But the light become much, it became much brighter centuries later with the prophets. And I ask you to turn to Isaiah 53. And this is where the picture begins to become much clearer as we approach the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 53, and let's begin by looking at verse 4. It talks about he here, and the he is the, the servant of God. The servant is identified um, back in chapter 52, verse 13. So this is referring to the servant. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. He was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he has done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So we see these remarkable words here about this servant. Well, what do we know is true about this servant? Well, we're told that he suffers. We see there in, in um, 4 that he was stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced in verse 5. He was crushed. He had wounds upon him. But not only was he injured and wounded, in fact, he died. We see there in verse 8 he was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. So this, the servant would both suffer and die. And yet he would suffer and die as one who was innocent. You see there in verse 9, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He, did, he had done nothing deserving of suffering and death, but he would suffer and die. Well, why would he suffer and die? Well, we see that running throughout this passage here, don't we? In verse 4, he took up our infirmities. He took the, the infirmities of Israel. He took the sorrows of Israel. In verse 5, he was pierced for Israel's transgressions. He was crushed for Israel's iniquities. In verse uh, 8, it was for the transgression of God's people that he was stricken. Why did he suffer? Why did he die? He suffered and died because of the sins of God's people. He took upon himself those sins and suffered and died the death that God's people deserved to die. And what would be the outcome of this suffering and death? We see that there in verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What flows out of the suffering and death of the servant, it's peace to us. 
It's that our wounds are, it's healing to us. Well, who then was this servant? Well, we get a very interesting glimpse at who this servant was in verse 7. And it helps fill in the picture, linking it up with what's come before. We're told in verse 7, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In, in suffering and in dying and bearing the sins of his people, he did all this like a lamb. Just as a lamb would have been led up to the temple to be offered as a sacrifice, so this one, this servant, would be led like a lamb to suffer and die for the sins of his people. Well, who is this servant? Who is this one like a lamb? Well, that leads us to our final text this evening. If you'll turn to John chapter 1. As Philip mentioned already, in John chapter 1, we see a man named John, oftentimes referred to as John the Baptist, who was a prophet in Israel, not the same as the author. And we're told there in chapter 1, verse 29, that one day, or the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man come, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So as John is preaching one day, as he's ministering, he sees Jesus coming and he calls out with the old word in the other translations, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was identifying Jesus as the, the servant in Isaiah 53. He was identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of all those pictures. The picture of the ram offered instead of Isaac. The picture of the Passover lamb offered instead of the firstborn. The picture of the lamb who had been offered instead of the firstborn sons going forward to the life of Israel. Jesus was the fulfillment of all those pictures. He would be the lamb who would take upon himself the sins of not just Israel here, but in fact of the entire world. And he would bear their sins suffer and die the death that their sins that they deserve to die that they might have peace that they might be healed and yet not only was jesus a lamb we see something very interesting going in the next few verses there then john gave this testimony i saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him i would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man who on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So John has not only identified Jesus as being the Lamb of God, he also identifies Jesus as being the Son of God. And here we learn that what we saw taking place in Genesis 22, but what was stopped at the last moment, in a sense, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because as John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God called on Isaac, on Abraham to offer up Isaac, but did not require him to follow through. But indeed, centuries later, God the Father did offer up His Son, His sinless Son, to be the Lamb who would bear the sins of the world that we would know peace, that we would know healing. So what should we do in response to this message? Well, we should, we should respond to this message by obeying the command that John gave. John said, look, look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
What is your hope that your sins would be taken away? Is it your good deeds? Is it your attendance at church? Is it your family, a Christian family heritage? Are you clinging to anything to take away your sins other than the Lamb? If so, we need to follow what John says and look to the Lamb. He's our only hope. He's the only assurance of salvation. This is something we need to do daily. We do it weekly when we come together, but we need to do it daily. Continually look to the Lamb as our salvation. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us in the salvation that you've accomplished. We thank you that although all we like sheep had gone astray, each to our own way, you were pleased to lay upon your son the, our sins and that you're pleased to have him die the death that we deserve to die. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith to continually look to the Lamb as our only salvation. Deliver us from any trusting in ourselves, any trusting in our works, any trusting in any institutional affiliations. But help us look only to Him as our hope of salvation. And Lord, we pray that you would help us also to follow the pattern of John and live lives both in word and in deed that point others to your Son as the Lamb in a world that is so full of sin and darkness, in a world that is under condemnation, the only hope, Lord, is for people to look to your Son. So give us the lips and the lives to proclaim the gospel that your Son indeed died for our sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.